0: A Podcast One Production. Oh, that's a curly one. Big Questions. G'day, Adam Spencer here with another edition of The Big Questions. I emceed the Singularity You event in Sydney. If you haven't heard, of Singularity U. It's the concept of people thinking on the topic of our exponentially growing technologies. What impact will the move towards artificial intelligence, robotics, etc. have on the world in which we live? Mark Goodman is an interesting cat. Probably wouldn't describe himself as a cat, but I sat down with him for a while. This man is an interesting cat. He's had a career in law enforcement, he's worked as a futurist with the FBI, he's been a senior advisor to Interpol, but now he's the chair for policy, law and ethics at Singularity University. In this world of ransomware and cybercrime and hacking and Cambridge Analytica, I asked Mark Goodman, what does the future of crime look like? So Mark Goodman, tell us a little bit about yourself, who are you and what do you do?
1: Well, I work in the field of security, I would say. My background is in law enforcement and counterterrorism. For many years I worked in the US for the government and um, I'm trying to make the world a better place by making it a safer place.
0: Normally the joke if I say, oh, you used to work for the US government, can you tell me about that is, you can tell me but you'd have to kill me.
1: Uh, Are you allowed to tell me what you used to do for the US government? I think the better question is, am I allowed to kill you? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Yeah, I worked as a police officer. So I was a copper in Los Angeles, worked in all over South Central. Big cop, just walking the street. Big cop. Wow. Driving the streets, riding the streets, walking the streets. Uh, worked undercover vice and narcotics, everything from prostitutes to drugs. And then I ended up founding the internet unit for the Los Angeles Police Department. A long Founding.
0: Time ago. Yes. So when is it that you set up an internet unit? Department within the LAPD, yep. and what year was it, and why was that the time for that to happen?
1: Well, I had worked as a patrol officer, and one of the things I realized back in those late 80s, early 90s, is that uh, criminals started to use and experiment technologies in ways that the cops were not prepared for. In those days, we used to see gang members with pagers and beepers, and then eventually, you know, five. Kilo cell phones. I,
0: I don't mean to laugh because at the yeah. time it would have been very difficult for you, but the idea of Mr. or Mrs. Big getting a quick page, so exactly. meet me on the corner, we got a deal going right.
1: down. But that was surprising because the criminals, the gang members, the drug dealers had pagers long before the cops ever mm. did. And I used to, you know, pull over these sixteen year old gangbangers with pagers. And at the time, back in those days, the only people who ever had pagers were physicians. And so I used to, you know, tease the gangbangers. It's mm. like, well, they weren't physicians, but they were in the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> (laughs) Uh, Nonetheless, and uh, so, you know, I was like, wow, look at they're adopting technology more quickly than the police. And as time went on, their technologies got better and better. And I looked on the law enforcement side and they were not doing it. So I said, hmm, this cybercrime stuff, you know, because they were online early before there was an obvious Internet. They were using things like Prodigy and CompuServe and, you know, Quicken, right? Drugs dealers were using Quicken to do their books. For people who don't know, what was Quicken or what was was CompuServe and... Yeah, CompuServe was like a prototypical early version of the open internet. So CompuServe and Prodigy were like... Closed internet providers that people could use to sort of get online in a very, very walled garden. Be like having
0: sort of a private Snapchat account these yeah, days. Yeah, exactly.
1: And you could only send emails to you know to other people who had a Prodigy account mm. or a CompuServe account or something like that. But criminals were doing that uh, quite early on. They were being very clever in you know doing their online accounting, mm. uh, you know, using this digital tool. So I saw criminals adopting them earlier, and so I went to. To my captain and I said hey boss I think we need a computer crime unit and he looked at me funny and said computer crime <laughs> like what is that if you pick up the monitor or hit somebody in the head and kill them with it <laughs> literally and I said no not that type of computer crime and I tried to explain what computer crime was and he did not get it at all mm. so it was very much an uphill battle and in my book I tell the story of how I got my first cybercrime case which was I was working as an investigator. My lieutenant looked around the squad room and screamed at me, Goodman, get your ass over here. And I'm like, okay, boss. Just like it
0: happens in the shows. Yeah, I love it.
1: Exactly. I thought I was in trouble. And he said, I got a question for you. How do you spell check and word perfect? I said, well, you know, shift F2. He goes, I knew you would know the answer. You're a geek. I got a case for you. So the fact that I could spell check put me on the technological forefront of the LAPD back in the day, and that's how I got my first cybercrime case. But
0: it's one of those interesting things, isn't it? Because once you've got that device or that unit, in theory, you have some tremendous capacity. But there's a long step from that capacity existing in some small corner of one police station to it being standard practice across police as a unit. And we I see parallels these days, that, you know, the very best internet security you can get on your computer at home versus what most people are doing. Right. The best of the best versus common practice is yep. something I think we'll, we'll focus on eventually. When did it move from that sort of interest? You know, the internet then was a good way of keeping track of crime and trying to process crime. But now the internet is a place that is in itself a, a hotbed of crime. I heard a great quote from someone who'd read... One of your books saying, reading your book is like an episode of Black Mirror, (laughs) but the stories are real. The internet is now a place where crime's happening as much as we're using the internet to fight crime,
1: isn't it? Oh yeah, the internet is the scene of the crime. It's the scene of the crime. In the old days, uh, for a while, we didn't even know how many quote unquote, computer crimes, or that's what they were called before they were cybercrime, they were computer crimes. And now you cannot find a crime that does not have technological evidence associated with it, whether it be a homicide, a sexual assault, a fraud case, um, cyberbullying, arson, right? There's technological evidence everywhere. It's on the internet, it's in our email accounts, it's in our GPS, it's in our car, it's on CCTV. So every Crime has a nexus to technology, and you have both the perpetrators using all of these tools to carry out their offences, and every single one of those is also a mechanism for law enforcement to investigate.
0: So, by definition, then, even back in the days of the Commodore 64 or whatever, you've got computer crime. But in the modern era of what, when do you consider, let's call it cybercrime, when, when do you consider cybercrime? begins what are the, what are the initial drivers of
1: You mean back in the day?
0: Yeah, but not not just not just crimes in the non-computer world for which there's a record on computers, right. but when yeah, right. the digital world sure. became the criminal battleground. Yeah, battle absolutely.
1: Ramp. I would say early on, right? So probably at least 20 years ago, people mm. were trying to break into systems. The uh, I think it was Levin was his uh, last name, a Russian hacker broke into Citibank, right, circa mid-1995. So wow. early days people and he got away with over well over a million dollars back then
0: back when a million dollars meant something
1: exactly i think it was alexander levin i forget his exact name Mm. but uh, you know there are people hacking into banks for quite some time and that is the target of the attack and now we see that just broadly and widely across the world
0: the sort of ways that people are attempting to hack into systems and the ways that we are now defending systems have gone through many generations of evolution let's try for you know, the listeners to put some meaning behind some words... A virus? What's a, what's a computer virus? Um,
1: so we use the language of medicine frequently to describe computer threats. We talk about computer viruses. We talk about computer infections the same way we do in human epidemiology. We do the same thing uh, with our technological devices. So we have an immune system, and in theory, the operating system of a computer is its code, right? And that code can get infected. And so there's malwares and Trojans and virus is and all that stuff. And broadly, they're all kind of the same thing. I mean, there's minute variations that only security professionals care about. But for the general public, getting one of those things on your computer means that your computer will behave in a way that is unintended and not in your best interest. Mm.
0: So the idea is if you somehow let this into your system, yes. it will do damage yes. once it's there, whether just locking up data that you can't use or stopping your computer working or breaking past the computer from talking to each other. And
1: sticking with the human sort of epidemiological explanation, you can have everything from a minor cold with the sniffles all the way up to a computer version of Ebola. Right, and everything in between, and we've seen that all nowadays.
0: And what becomes relevant also when you're in, a, 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 say, an office space with multiple people you, part of the one system, even though I'm super healthy and only eat my vegetables and do lots of push ups and all sorts of things, if Gary at the desk down the corridor, it's almost like as though if Gary drinks a bit too much and eats cream pies. I'm the one who can get diabetes from it.
1: Absolutely. And that's the amazing thing is, so we talked about epidemiological approach to sort of cybersecurity and cybercrime. There's also a public health approach that we should be considering and frequently don't, which is that it all falls to the lowest common denominator. So if you've got great cybersecurity and you're really careful and you do all the right things and your knucklehead brother-in-law sends you some stupid cat video that's infected, now you can be screwed over by that. What is ransomware? So ransomware is a class of malware that will go ahead and hold the files in your computer for ransom. And what that looks like specifically is you will get your computer infected. And what you will notice is a big pop-up, usually in red, that will take over the entire screen. And it says, warning, your computer is infected or your computer has been taken hostage or warning, you must pay a ransom. And you will see a notice that says all of your files have been encrypted, meaning that they've been scrambled with encryption software such that you can no longer read or access them. So you lose access to your email, your photographs, your videos, your business documents, every." part of your digital life and the criminals usually give you 24 to 72 hours to pay them and if you don't pay them they will destroy the private key with which they've encrypted all of your data which means it's permanently lost uh and you pay them on demand via bitcoin because obviously they don't want to take checks or credit cards (coughs) or anything like that
0: i might be being overly technical here but If you refuse to pay, they don't then flick a switch that destroys your computer as much as they throw away the key that could have undone the lock on the data.
1: That's right. And there's multiple variants of it. So sometimes they give you 48 hours and if you don't pay, they do destroy your data. Sometimes if you... They give you forty-eight hours. And you don't pay. They'll give you another twenty-four hours, and they'll raise the price <laughs> as a fine. So if you had to pay one bitcoin previously and you didn't pay in the first forty-eight hours, now you'll have to pay two bitcoin or something like that.
0: Have we seen enough of this happening to know are there general rules? Should you always pay if you call their bluff? Are they just bullies who will go away? Is it in? If if you do pay, you're guaranteed they won't come back because they need to maintain because there are the de- criminals the de- yes. de- integrity <laughs> in pay. What what are some of the rules that seem to be emerging, or are there no rules in this cowboy world?
1: There are no rules in this cowboy world, and it's changing all the time. And each one of these organized criminals is their own actor that acts in their own way, so you never really know one way or the other. Law enforcement, including the FBI, Interpol, and Europol, will tell you don't pay, um, and you have to be careful because, frankly, you don't. whom you are paying. You're paying an organization that has held your computer for ransomware, but on the side, they also could be selling uh, child abuse images, for example. And so you're supporting an organization that, in fact, is causing great harm to young children. We're seeing an increasing number of terrorists that are turning to ransomware because the crime is so effective, the rewards are so high, and the likelihood of getting caught is so low that they've got nothing to worry about. And so under U.S. law, and UK law, for example, there's something called material support to terrorism. Mm. So if you Get one ransomware on your computer and you actually pay the terrorist. Now you are supporting a terrorist (coughs) organization, the FBI can come knocking on your door and yell at you, even though you were the victim uh, in that case. So law enforcement tells you don't pay. um, And they are some people who pay and get back access to their files, and there are people who pay and don't get access to their files. And there's even another complication, which is that there's no payer list. So once you get infected, if you pay once, they're going to come back and visit you a couple of months from now because like oh we can count on him to pay us so there's really no good guidance the best guidances don't become infected
0: and we'll get to a sec in a second to how how you do that in terms of the bad agents who can be working here uh, I, I assume they fall into two very broad schools of private and you know state or public within private highly organised, sophisticated European crime gangs and terrorist organisations, are there still also the occasional just really bored, spotty-faced 14-year-old boy in the garage who bring about, like, serious... Issues internationally on you know IT security?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It happens all the time. I mean, I don't want to give the wrong impression. If you, you may remember that movie War Games, mm-hmm. I think from the late in, or the nineteen eighties, where Matthew Broderick was the kid who accidentally hacks into the Pentagon. Mm. And so that's been our prototypical hacker mindset in today's world. We may think more of Elliot and Mr. Robot mm-hmm. as being that guy a bit more dour and dark. But those people definitely do exist. But make no mistake, the overwhelming majority majority of cybercrime is committed by organized crime groups around the world. But yes, those people are out there and they can do tremendous damage. There's another thing that's happening now with the world of cybercrime, which is brand new, is that in years past, you needed to be technologically competent and sophisticated as a hacker uh, to know how to break into systems. Now what we're seeing is those old world hackers with technological skill have created software that younger, less experienced hackers can use that will carry out the attacks automatically. And ransomware is a great example of that. You don't need to be technologically sophisticated to launch a ransomware attack. You can just figure out the file that you want to infect and upload it and spread it around and you know put in your Bitcoin account and you're off to the races. So, so it's
0: like open source cyber terrorism now. Exactly, mail.
1: yeah, There's it's what's called a crimeware, right? So there's software, there's hardware, and there's crimeware, there's software that commits crime. And and the impact of that is that it has reduced the barrier to entry for people who previously would have been street thugs and doing neighbourhood burglaries, mm. now are getting in on this cybercrime stuff because it's relatively easy to do. And so
0: sophisticated upmarket thuggery on exactly. their part. Their parents would be very proud to uh, see them advancing. Let's hope so, yes. So a couple of these incidents that people would have heard about that you might be able to shine some light for us. Um, you know, WannaCry terrified everyone for a brief moment there and as far as i understand there was a little technical error in wanna cry that someone solved for- for yeah. $13 and brought it to down. Can you, can you talk us through the
1: WannaCry story? What sure. was that about? So WannaCry is an example of ransomware and it was launched around the world. It affect uh, computer networks in over 150 different countries.
0: I remember seeing the websites saying, this country's gone. Oh, it's just been detected here. Yeah. Oh, a bank's just found it in this country. It was it was spreading like a, a fast
1: pandemic. Exactly, which is why, again, the medical analogy yeah. is useful because that's the way the World Health Organization tracks these things. They have similar big companies. Computer screens where they do that type of stuff, and some of the people that were impacted by it included FedEx in the United mm-hmm. States, the package sending service. So you couldn't track or send your package. And if you've just ordered a pair of underwear on Amazon, who cares? But we also send blood and medicine and other things that need to be tracked. And FedEx went down. We had Telefonica in Spain go down. Were those and
0: places going down because what an email arrived from somewhere and someone on that system opened it? Was it sent by email? Each or was one
1: it- was each each situation. Situation was different, but yes, it was spread via emails, it was spread via files, and it was spread via just visiting certain websites could infect you under certain so circumstances. So someone might have got an
0: email from, you know, from Sarah saying, Here's that important thing I sent you. Can you right. open it, please? Yep. Click on that. F- yep. Infected. Off Multi-vector.
1: You go. So there were lots of different ways of infecting people. In France, one of the interesting things that happened was it wasn't just on what we would call the business technology, meaning you know the email servers and the computers on your desk, but it actually jumped the shark into the operational technology. So the computers that controlled the manufacturing line at Renault, the big robots that put together the cars, actually became infected. Mm and they had to stop. So the assembly lines for making cars became infected and had to stop. And perhaps the worst example from WannaCry infections around the world occurred in the UK, where the NHS was pretty much knocked offline. Nearly 100 local trusts were infected with computers. Hospitals had to close, go on diversion. And we also had patients who had heart surgeries that had been canceled as a result of the WannaCry attack. And one thing that people forget about WannaCry is I believe it occurred one week after the Ariana Grande terrorist bomb uh, up in Manchester Mm. at the concert. So here you have a bunch of people who are suddenly sick and injured in a terrorist attack, high demand on medical services, and had that WannaCry attack arrived a week before, then your hospitals would have been severely degraded, which means there could have been loss of human life.
0: I read somewhere that someone managed to bring it undone because they registered a domain name or something that WannaCry had to keep checking. And once this person registered the domain name... WannaCry sort of just decayed and killed itself or something? Yeah. That's a very untechnical explanation. Yeah, it
1: gets highly, highly technical, but in short, there's kind of this concept of sinkholing. All of these pieces of malware will call home one way or another. They'll try to signal out. They'll send encrypted messages, and if you can disrupt that attack chain and basically break it, then you can stop one of these attacks, and I believe it was a young man in the UK who did that, who oddly, I think, was arrested after the fact for discovering the flaw For reasons I don't fully understand. But one of the things that was interesting is we presumed it was organized crime that was behind Mm. WannaCry, but it's subsequently been revealed that it was actually the North Korean government Mm. that launched that attack. And then we had another attack called Petya, which was similar. similar to WannaCry? Yep, similar, and then not Petya. Uh, and now we've just found out within the past, I would say, week that the um, British government, the Australian government, the New Zealand government, uh, Canadian and American governments have all ascribed responsibility for not Petya to the Russian government or to Russian Mm. hackers um, believed under the control of the Russian government. So what's fascinating about this is these are carrying out criminal activities, but in these particular cases, they were launched and supported by state actors. And the thing that's even more fascinating About this, is where did that malware, those viruses, these information warfare tools actually come from? And it turns out they were actually produced by the US government, the NSA, and GCHQ. These were kind of information bombs that the U.S. government and other allied countries had launched at targets overseas, and those targets became infected, grabbed them, and were able to reverse-engineer them. So unlike conventional kinetic warfare, where I drop a bomb on your house and the whole bomb explodes, you can't put it back together and make another bomb.
0: It's It's like you drop a bomb in my house, I go, that's a really cool bomb. Go and photocopy this bomb, and let's throw them back at Mark.
1: Yeah, it's the Molotov cocktail that doesn't go off. Right. And then you get to throw it back. So when we're creating these information weapons, right, we need to think if somebody, if a general in the American army lost a nuke, people would be pretty concerned about that. And if, you know, one of our nukes ended up in the hands of our enemies, right, then we'd be concerned. But our information weapons are not well guarded and are now increasingly becoming into the hands of countries like North Korea, Russia, let alone organized criminal groups.
0: And so that complicated web you've just described there. You know, makes the whole concept of the good guys versus the bad guys a difficult one. But I'd like to assume that I'm one of, let's say I'm one of the good guys. Absolutely. Okay. In terms of keeping the good guys safe. Yes. The, what's the balance between obviously to be good if I as an individual or my company was good at our own internal security, but I possibly also need my government if it's a Good government to be fighting hard. What's the balance between how those two have to work together to keep us ahead in the arms race?
1: Yeah, I would say there is the utopian perspective and then there's the realistic perspective. So the utopian perspective is I'm a taxpayer. I pay lots of money to the government, the government is supposed to defend me, and as a citizen, I will demand that of my government. And you will be sadly disappointed and badly (laughs) hacked. So, you know, so uh, America has a reputation for having lots of crazy people who have lots of guns and want to go hide in caves and, you know, live on ranches to get out of the system and keep, you know, preppers, I think they're called, where they have like years of food Mm -hmm. and the like, and there's other people around the world who have similar thoughts. Uh, In the world of cyber, that's not necessarily a bad idea, I say half jokingly, because you are literally on your own. The citizens around the world should be burning down their various parliaments given the response that their governments have to protecting them up until this point think about it if you had a russian mig fly over brisbane or if you had a russian mig fly over london or new york you can bet your butt that you know the ministry of defense would be scrambling on the front jets floor, and bang. they would be right there and they would do something to protect the american british uh, you know kiwi citizen etc and yet every day we have russian bits fly across our border and land in our computer systems or Chinese bits or North Korean bits. Is it as Iranian easy for bits? our
0: governments to stand up against that by the, the nope. nature of the digital nope. world? Is it just harder it's, to do?
1: It's not easy, but you know what? We're not here to do the easy things. We're here to do the hard things, right? Think about all the great things, right? Fighting for civil rights, that was hard, right? People had to do hard work for that. Ending slavery, that was hard. Curing cancer, that's hard. It doesn't mean we don't do it. And what I've seen is in this case, most governments have badly, badly abdicated their responsibilities in protecting citizens. And for people like myself who work in the private sector and former government, it's created tremendous opportunities because people need to hire the consultants to do this work. To give you an example, one company alone, JPMorgan Chase, the, Mm -hmm. the global bank, spent $600 million last year on cybersecurity. So $600 million US just for one bank, for one company in one country. Another way to consider that is a massive, massive tax on JP Morgan Chase, because all the money that they're spending on cybersecurity is not spent serving their citizens, mm-hmm. right? Think about if J.P. Morgan Chase had to put up its own army, right? We can't really rely upon the American uh, Ministry of Defense or mm-hmm. Department of Defense to keep you know, Soviet jets or Russian Federation jets out of the United States, so we're gonna to need to buy our own jets. They're doing the same thing in cyberspace, and I think that as long as citizens continue to let their governments get away with it, um, then they will. Mm-hmm.
0: As citizens, what are three simple basic things I could do today to make at least my personal phone, computer, my immediate mm-hmm. network or in my workplace as safe as I realistically can without knowing much about what I'm doing or expending too much effort or money. What are some uh, basic things, things you'd love everyone three to do? Three
1: things off the top of my head. Uh, never purchase anything that uh, comes with an electrical plug and you plug into the wall. Never purchase anything that has a battery in it and never go on the internet. And if you do those three okay, things, good. you should be relatively safe.
0: <laughs> I do a bit of work at different events with people in this yes. community and people in in the community of internet security strike me as incredibly talented and very passionate but they sit on a sort of a spectrum of how not paranoid i don't mean any word pejorative like that but some of them, are matter of fact, and we're getting there, we're staying in front, of it's hard work. Others are, if you ever once in your life download free hotel Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. that will begin the apocalypse that kills us all.
1: Exactly. Where, then come
0: the zombies. Are you in a position to judge objectively where you sit on that? Spectrum I think so. Of how positive, negative, optimistic, pessimistic you are about these. I things? I think so.
1: Well, first, let me clarify and say my previous answer with three suggestions mm. was a joke. Yeah. Um, the I'll, fact- I'll get in a second to a more serious answer, but good. Yeah. What I would say is. Um, There actually are tremendous steps that you can take to protect yourself in terms of where I sit on there. The fact of the matter is none of us has any idea what any of the electronic devices in our lives do. Mm -hmm. Right. We have to put faith in companies like Microsoft or Toyota or Samsung Mm -hmm. and believe that they've done the right thing. But if you think about it, something like Microsoft Office has over a hundred million lines of computer code. Nobody, including the people who wrote it, have gone through those hundred million lines of computer code. So when you launch Spell Checker in Microsoft Word or hit the Snapchat app on your phone, you're believing certain things happen, but you don't provably know what's going on at all, which is fundamentally the problem. It's it's a twofold problem. Number one, there's no such thing as trustworthy computing, right? Where you have clear insight that, oh, this is what's going to happen. And that's what criminals exploit through malware and other such tools. And the other challenge is most people have no idea how the things work. Hmm. If you go back a hundred years or so to the first automobiles, you know, Henry Ford was rolling them out. And in those early days, there were no garages and there were no gas stations. So if you bought a Model T Ford, you were also by default a mechanic. Mm-hmm. You needed to know how those things work. And I think for the first group of people who went online, you know, maybe in the 80s and, and 90s, there were um, previous. Um, protocols to the internet that were much more rough around the edges, things like Gopher and Telnet Mm -hmm. and Mosaic and other such things you had to use. And therefore you need to understand a little bit about, you know, uh, HTTP and Mm -hmm. what did it mean and how do you set up a web page and how do you read this code, et cetera. And what is an internet protocol? Whereas nowadays it's all point and click. Any monkey can get an Mm -hmm. iPad and you see, you know, children that are one to two years old, pushing things quite capably on the iPad to make it work. And there's a misnomer out there, I think, or, or a misunderstood idea that the older generation don't understand technology. And they're the old old fogies, the old fuddy-duddies who don't mm-hmm. get it. Um, and that may be true, certainly, in, in some cases. But I will tell you this, um, when I do a lot of work with younger people, I've talked to, you know, tens of thousands of high school students, you know, 14 to 18 years of age. And what's amazing is they are expert users of technology, but they have no idea how any of it works Mm -hmm. and they have no curiosity about it. And Carl Sagan famously said that that is a very, very dangerous mix that's going to blow up in our face because we live in a world where either you code or you get coded. And if you can't code, somebody else is coding you, and most people have no idea that that's the case.
0: Okay, so for the 99% of the community who can't effectively code, what are three things they could do tomorrow to make themselves or their workplaces or their home networks considerably more robust?
1: Yes. Um, well, here's the thing. So we've talked about the downsides and there's many of mm-hmm. them and many potential risks. However, technology is awesome, right? You can do fantastic stuff with it. I don't want anybody listening to this interview think for a minute that I'm saying technology is bad, right? We're going to use technology to bring a billion people out of poverty. We're mm-hmm. going to radically extend human life with technology. We're going to reduce infant mortality by 90% or more. So technology is awesome. The trick is you just need to know how to use it safely. And for your listeners who don't know, here's a word of consolation. It's not their fault because nobody ever taught them right when you were a little kid your mom or your dad told you oh look both ways before you cross the street and make sure you lock the house when you go off to school we know that when we drive our cars to the shopping mall we don't leave our keys in the cars and the engine running but there's been no formal education anywhere in your life whether it be from your school your family your employer of what good cyber hygiene looks like Mm -hmm. and so i think there's a lot that can be done so specifically there are the following small steps make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And I want people to understand that I've created something called the Update Protocol, U-P-D-A-T-E, which stands as an acronym for a bunch of different steps that people can take. The update is for updating their software. If you just update your software alone, that is the single greatest thing that you can do to protect yourself because
0: most likely has the most current patches and protections against things that have emerged since the last time you updated your software
1: software is riddled with bugs Mm -hmm. and it's very interesting um, from a psychological perspective When you see that pop up on your iPhone or your Android phone or in Microsoft Office, that says, oh, a new version is available. That's a very, very polite way of saying our previous software was hosed. It was riddled with bugs. It's full of security flaws. We've just realized it and fix it. There's a new upload available, right? (laughs) That's the most positive spin, and people don't think about it. But every time there's an update, it's for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's because they're fixing some bug or flaw. There was a study done by NTT Docomo in Japan, and they studied 6 billion cyber attacks. And what they discovered is 76% of the time, a cyber attack was successful, even if the malware was over two years old, Mm. meaning that 76% of the time, a virus that was created two years ago would still work. Just keeping your software patched and up-to-date has just eliminated 76% of the threats Mm -hmm. out there. So that one thing alone. The other things that I talk about are password management, um, using a password manager, using two-factor authentication, encryption. Another thing I talk about is administrator accounts. Most people might not know what an administrator account on their computer is, but if you have one account on your computer, like if you log on and it's just you, you are by default the administrator. What does it mean to be the administrator of a computer, it means that you have full access to change anything you want in that machine, including all the underlying software. It's a very, very powerful position, kind of an omnipotent position over your computing code and hardware.
0: If I'm the, if what's wrong with me being the administrator? Why, what, what weaknesses do I have by being the administrator?
1: If you're the administrator and you click on a bad link, if you click on an infected document, if you click on a bad uh, video that has malware embedded in it and you're the administrator, then that malware can automatically install and run on your machine because it, you as administrator have maximum control over the device and oh. therefore the malware just installs. Whereas, if you were running your own computer as a standard user, as opposed to being the administrator, if you clicked on a link to go to CNN, or if you tried to open up a PDF, you would get a pop-up window that says, please enter your administrator password. You should not need an administrator password to open a PDF or to go to Uh CNN.com. So,
0: if you set up a structure where you're just doing your normal thing, but you're technically not the administrator. You're further walling yourself against. Exactly.
1: So it's, you don't want to be in God mode, i.e. Administrator Mm -hmm. when you're doing your daily surfing, banking, shopping, any of that stuff. Do all of your work from a standard user account, and here's the fascinating research. If you just make that one change by being a standard user for all of your daily activities and only entering in your admin password and your user credentials for the administrator account when you need to, like for example when you yourself are installing software, right? You should Mm -hmm. only put in your admin credentials when you know that you need to put them, not to do something incredibly basic. That one change alone will eliminate 95% of the vulnerabilities in Windows. It will eliminate 99% of the vulnerabilities in Microsoft Office and will eliminate 99.5% of all of the vulnerabilities and risks in Microsoft Explorer and Edge. So my point is, This isn't rocket science, right? You don't need Mm. to understand what in a great length what administrator is. You don't need to understand how to code. You just need to know not to do it. And so to help people understand these things, I've actually just created an online course where I go through all of this stuff. And I'm pretty excited and proud about it because it is provable, right? A lot of Mm. this is based upon research actually done by the Australian Ministry of Defense, who is quite a lead in this world. They studied hundreds of thousands of cyber attacks and they brought broke it into 20 different categories of things that go wrong. And then they further refined it into six or eight categories. And then I refined it beyond that. But what they said is that if you control for those six or eight things, you can reduce your cyber risk by 85%. Now, think about that. Mm. Who wouldn't want to be 85% better shape, 85% richer, right? Have 85% better kids. Getting 85% better at anything is pretty amazing. Mm. And so there are no free lunches, but this is about as close as you can get. So small steps make a huge difference. You just need to know what they are. And if you go to getcybersavvy.com, G E T, cybersavvy, S A V V Y.com, you'll see a link to the class and a whole bunch of tools that can help you. And I've tried to be as specific as possible because unfortunately there's a ton of advice on cybersecurity Mm. out there. And most of it is wholly ineffective. They say things like, don't click on a suspicious link. Well, what is a suspicious link? How is your grandma supposed to know what one looks like? Or your grandpa? Hmm. They'll say, um, avoid dangerous websites. What is a dangerous website? Hmm. So I tell you very clearly, download a password manager, use this password manager, use this VPN and the like. And if you follow those steps, I think you can be drastically more secure online.
0: See, halfway through this talk, I was very worried. Now I'm feeling absolutely bulletproof. In summary, it's an ongoing arms race. Are we winning the good guys?
1: We are not winning. Um, We have a long, long way to go. I think we're going to go through a rather dark period for a while, because it is up until now the wild, wild west. Until we develop something at the systemic level that's going to work from a technological perspective, from a government perspective, from a regulatory perspective, from a technological perspective, from an educational perspective, it is such a complex domain of operation. It's going to take a lot of steps. Now, keep in mind, it literally took billions and billions and billions of steps from the date the internet was created back in the the 1960s until now to get us into this position, and it's going to take billions of steps to undo it and fix it. I have called for previously, and I still think we should have, a equivalent of a Manhattan Project for cybersecurity. Right? We need that level of seriousness. Go back to the original mm. Manhattan Project. We face an existential threat of the Nazis and the Axis getting a nuclear weapon before the Allies did. In response, we gathered 120,000 of the smartest people around the world, locked them in a room, and said, figure this out. And we did. And I don't see that level of commitment yet, but I think it's going to... To take an effort of that level to drastically push us forward
0: at least we can be confident until that moment we do have the man who encouraged the lapd to set up its internet crime section on the front line doing the right thing mark goodman just fascinated to speak with
1: you thank you the pleasure was mine
0: This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.